Hi, this is Rachel on Recovery. We've got a special guest today, David. He's going to tell us a little bit about himself. He's a survivor of childhood sexual abuse um, within inside the church. Um, David, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a semi-retired father of two um, in a wonderful 32-year marriage. And uh, for about 30 years, I was a national director of a group called SNAP, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, which is a support and advocacy group. Um, Despite the word priest in the title, uh, we welcome uh, anybody and everybody who is uh, hurt in an institutional setting. And um, uh, I I repress the memories of my childhood sexual abuse um, until I was around 30 years old. And that's really when my recovery began. Okay. Um, so I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Um, what things have you done um, for recovering from being sexually abused? Oh, I think it feels to me like I've done or tried uh, a wide variety of things, primarily uh, one-on-one therapy. Uh, although I've also done uh, group therapy, uh, art therapy, um, and really, uh, my involvement with SNAP has been a huge part of my recovery, both going to uh, just countless um, SNAP support group meetings, um, and also, um, I may be in the minority on this, but but the advocacy and the um, uh, public outreach that SNAP does has also been very, very healing for me. Okay. Um, what has been the most helpful Oh, I think um, I think uh, it would have to be therapy. Um, I've found that uh, I've I've managed to pick a pretty competent therapists for the most part, but even even less competent therapists I've found uh, were helpful as well. Um, and. Uh, I remembered my memories when I was going out with a woman who later became my wife and she's a social worker. And so uh, she's also been an extraordinary, extraordinary uh, part of my, part of my healing. Okay. Um, How did your family respond? Not well. (laughs) Um, I come from a, from a uh, kind of working class family in a rural part of Missouri uh, six kids, both parents, uh, very devout Catholics. Um, the good news is that uh, when I disclosed, uh, mom and dad believed me. Um, and that's not an experience, as you know, that, that every survivor has. Um, the bad news is that um, they didn't really know what to do beyond that. And when I told them later that I was going to file a civil lawsuit against my perpetrator and, and the bishop, um, you know, they were, they were pretty, pretty upset. Uh, the whole situation is complicated by the fact that the priest who molested me, uh, molested three others, other boys in our family, including, uh, my younger brother, Kevin, who went on to become a priest himself, um, and molest kids himself. So in essence, when I sued the Jefferson, Jefferson city diocese, I was suing my brother's employer, if you will. That's got to be tricky. It was, it was very tricky. Um, it was, uh, you know, for, for the most part, frankly, I, I should have put litigation on that list of, of uh, 
things that have helped me in recovery because through my lawsuit, even though it was ultimately unsuccessful, um, I really did uh, regain some of my power and I took tremendous satisfaction out of, out of the fact that when I sued, uh, his name became public. He was suspended from ministry um, and other young men who had been hurt by him as kids uh, came forward to me. So all of that felt really, really good. Stressful, <laughs> stressful, but good. Um, I guess the next question, how did your community respond? Um, you know, uh, it, it's a, it's a conservative community. Luckily yeah. I had since moved to St. Louis, um, and built a very good network of friends. Um, so I feel really, really lucky in that respect. Um, to, to, a, to a person, every friend I had um, believed me, supported me, uh, applauded my decision to file a lawsuit and to speak publicly. Um, and that was hugely helpful, hugely helpful. Was there any re-victimization or victim blaming? Um, there was there was a fair amount of, of that in the in the media when I filed my lawsuit and began to speak publicly, um, because this was in the early '90s, and um, for younger folks, younger survivors, it may be hard to imagine just how shut down society was and how uh, people were not talking about abuse in general and certainly not abuse by priests. Um, probably the single greatest act of re-victimization, though, came at the hands of my bishop. Um, because I was suing my brother Kevin's employer, the Jeff City Diocese, uh, I chose to file as John Doe originally. And when the newspapers contacted the bishop, uh, he did not protect my privacy. In fact, he said to the newspapers, well, I don't know who this John Doe is who claims he was abused, but I do know that another guy uh, had come forward to us years ago making the same claim. And that guy was David Clossie. So in essence, I was, uh, I was immediately outed by my bishop. Ultimately, I had planned to disclose my identity, but um, thought I would file as John Doe in part to protect my family. So that was pretty, uh, pretty shocking and, and pretty upsetting um, when he did that. And luckily, uh, these days, that does not happen very often at all. Uh, for the most part, defendants uh, know that, you know, when somebody files as Jane Doe or John Doe, uh, they deserve, you know, that kind of privacy and that kind of protection and, and uh, yeah. honor it. How has this impacted your career? Oh, gosh, I would. My immediate response is in every conceivable way. Um, uh, I've spent my life basically working uh, for social justice um, in one form or fashion. Um, I think that even though I was not consciously aware of my abuse, um, initially, because I repressed it after each and every episode. Uh, I woke up the next morning with no recollection of it whatsoever. Still, I think in my gut and in my heart of hearts, I had developed uh, some sympathy for the underdog, the oppressed, the suffering, um, and that certainly affected my career choices. Um, in, in a very negative way, I think because I was abused by a man in authority, uh, 
um, I grew up with a very uh, strong dislike uh, for authority. And uh, looking back on my career, I realized I have done the best work when I had a female supervisor. Um, because when I had a male supervisor, every single time I was treated well or complimented, there was a little voice in the back of my head that says, ah, be careful. You know, maybe he's got a hidden agenda here. Maybe he's not really uh, looking out for me. Um, and I think that's directly tied to, to uh, my abuse. Tell us about, oh, working with SNAP. Well, for the first 15 years or so, um, we were an all-volunteer organization, um, small, scared, inexperienced, uncertain. Um, we very, very, we grew very, very slowly. And really all we wanted to do, um, we had no illusions about changing the Catholic hierarchy in any way. Uh, and all we wanted to do was to meet and, and uh, share our pain and provide a safe place for others to come and disclose their, their pain. Um, but eventually, we many of us began to realize that it's going to be hard for, for us to recover while our predators are still out there under the radar in parishes and, and possibly hurting kids today. And the bishops who covered for our predators were still in chancery offices, still had power, still covering for perpetrators. So that's what kind of led us to the activism part of us. We did we do, we've done a lot of leafleting outside parishes where predator priests um, were stationed or, or are stationed. And, and that's the side of SNAP that everybody sees, the, the stuff that gets us in the news media, the news conferences and stuff. But 90% of, of the work that SNAP does is just quiet one-on-one um, support for people, not just survivors, but you know, also uh, friends and family who call in and are confused and scared and want to know what they should do. Um, how did you cope with, uh, the triggers of working in that environment? Oh, for a long, long time, not well, uh, for a long time, it felt, uh, you know, the image that comes to the, the image that comes to mind is that of a roller coaster, but I don't think that's a great image because even when you get on the scariest roller coaster in the world, some part of you knows that it will come to an end and it'll come to an end safely, right? But that's not how it felt with SNAP. We were in uncharted waters. Again, very few people were talking about or acknowledging abuse by priests. And when it was acknowledged, it was always defined as kind of a one-off, uh, you know, what an aberration, you know, here's a, here's a bad apple in this otherwise gigantic and wonderful barrel. Um, so it was, very, it was very emotionally rocky for the longest time for me. Um, and gradually sort of became a pioneer less... of recovering from childhood sexual abuse as an adult male boomer and been in the field for 30 years. What trends have you noticed? I've noticed that in general, uh, slowly, sporadically, but in general, um, it's become less painful and difficult for survivors to come forward. Uh, there's more support. There's more different kinds of therapy. There are self-help groups. There are more uh, self-help books available. Um, you know, back in the day, in the 80s and 90s, we were out there on our own. Um, and it's still an uphill battle, right? There are still parents who don't believe 
when their when their child discloses abuse, and there are still oh shoot, sorry, there's um. So I don't mean to suggest it's easy for anybody to disclose abuse and to deal with abuse now. It's not. It's awful. It's hard, and it always will be. But it does seem like gradually it's getting uh, a little bit easier for survivors. Um, and are things improving or getting worse for survivors? Getting better in all respects, except one. And that is that, um, and this sounds cynical, hard for people to believe. I think that, uh, parents, police, prosecutors, politicians, judges, juries, they're all much more open to believing and helping abuse survivors. However, the exception is uh, the, the church hierarchy. I think the church hierarchy uh, has changed very, very little. Um, and again, that's hard for people to wrap their heads around. But, um, you know, if you're caught doing wrong, you've got two choices. You can either stop doing wrong or you can double down and work harder and smarter to conceal your wrongdoing. And that, unfortunately, is the path I think most bishops have chosen. And that's why there's been so little change in the church hierarchy. But outside of it, uh, in the secular world, uh, there's been tremendous change and all, all positive. How has this impacted your dating life when you, before you were married? Oh, well... Um, I got started dating pretty late. Um, I found it very hard to let any woman touch me. Um, I sabotaged relationships. Um, I broke up with a woman I was involved with for five years and couldn't really explain to her why I was wanted to break up um, because I didn't even know myself. Um, so it was uh, it was rough. It was rough. And uh, thankfully, um, I found a woman who was actually uh, working as a licensed mental health therapist uh, in a clinic seeing sexually abused little boys and girls. So she knew all the right things to say and do. And uh, again, it's been a tremendous part of my recovery. Um, how has this impacted your marriage? Well, um, you know, it, uh, it, it, it's led to some very tough years. Uh, I was dating Laura when I first remembered my abuse. So literally suddenly overnight, um, I became a very different person in a lot of ways. Um, depressed, distrustful, again, um, uptight about sex. And because of the family issues involved, um, that really complicated things um, because it was hard on Laura to suddenly have in-laws who really kind of weren't in-laws. Uh, in other words, we distance ourselves uh, from my parents and my family in general uh, very, very early on. And, and that was tough. That was tough. My, my dad, for example, didn't see our youngest until he was about five years old. Um, so, uh, we're, you know, Laura and I are in good shape now, thank heavens. Uh, but we've been to counseling as a couple as well. But uh, uh, yeah, it was very difficult in those early years, for sure. 
Um, how has this affected your parenting? Well, as you might expect, uh, I've been a pretty hypervigilant parent in some ways. Um, we were pretty cautious about letting our kids spend the night at somebody else's house. Uh, we, we moved to a house on a dead end street. Uh, and I was really reluctant to even let the kids ride bicycles. Um, luckily, you know, Laura is more reasonable and, uh, uh, talked me out of some of my, I, I won't call it paranoia, but I would say my, my hypervigilance. Um, yeah. And of course, then when I, I came to work full time for SNAP in 2002, um, which, uh, caused a lot of travel. I was gone a lot and that was really tough for me because one reason I think I was susceptible to being abused was because uh, my father traveled a lot for his work. And so my mother, I'm sure, felt overwhelmed. And uh, just clearly both of my parents uh, welcomed with open arms, welcomed this priest into our family. And um, so I, I felt uh, a fair amount of guilt early on when I was traveling and our kids were young and, uh, and Laura picked up a huge amount of the slack. Um, how did this impact your finances? Oh, <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, I, I, in, in conventional terms, uh, if you look at somebody who's gotten the, been privileged enough to get the education I got and, and work as hard as I have in, in conventional terms, uh, I've clearly sort of underperformed financially. Uh, you know, we've never been poor. We've never been hungry. Uh, but there's been some financial instability. And um, especially once I once I remembered the abuse, because for, I don't know, a period of maybe six months, I would get up in the morning and shower and shave and get dressed and eat breakfast and start to walk out the door and couldn't bring myself to do it. It was just hit or miss every single morning as to whether or not I would be able to pull myself together enough to show up to work. Luckily, I was working someplace where that was kind of tolerated. But um, but again, I think uh, in general, uh, I've made a lot less money than I would have otherwise made had I not carried this burden for so many years. And what about your expenses as far as like counseling and... Oh all your treatments and things you've tried. Um, It just boggles my mind to, to even think about how much money I've spent on counseling over the years. Um, In more recent years, uh, we've had much better health insurance uh, through my wife's job. And so that's been an enormous help. But again, I couldn't even begin to put a figure, a dollar figure on how much I've spent on counseling. And yet I would argue that every penny of it was, was worthwhile. I know many survivors can't say that. Uh, many survivors have had a very spotty record, you know, finding the right therapists and that sort of thing. But um, for me, therapy has been a real godsend, even though it's been extraordinarily expensive when you add it all up. How, how has this impacted your um, your overall long-term health? Um, you know, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I've read I've read the book uh, "The Body Keeps the Score," and I certainly yeah. subscribe to uh, the notion that uh, emotional trauma 
contributes heavily to uh, to health issues. Um, I've always had minor health issues. I've, I've had I've struggled with insomnia for many many years. Um, but it's actually only been in the last five years since I stopped working for SNAP full time uh, that I've that I've been hit with a slew of health issues. I've had uh, throat cancer. I've had prostate cancer. I, I currently have a non-cancerous uh, asymptomatic uh, brain tumor. Um, I, I once added it up, and I, I don't know. I think in the last four years or so, I've had three ER trips and uh, seven operations and three outpatient procedures. And it just goes on and on. So the last few years have been very rough health-wise, but I'm in good shape now. And uh, uh, that my, my health issues now are mostly uh, time-consuming and inconvenient and ever so slightly painful. None of them are life-threatening. Um, and so I, I can deal with that. The throat cancer was definitely the toughest and it was what I was hit with first and I feel very fortunate in that I got the worst of my health issues out of the way, you know, at first. And so everything else after throat cancer has seemed much less stressful and much more manageable. But it's really hard to draw a connection, the direct connection to the abuse. I mean, I always say to people, that's part of what makes abuse so pernicious and so hard to recover from because you can't see a direct cause and effect, right? If I break my leg as a kid and a doctor sets it poorly, um, I may walk with a limp the rest of my life, or I may have pain when I walk the rest of my life. But at no time in my life later on, do I say, wow, my stomach hurts. That's probably because the doctor set my leg improperly, right? With, with physical trauma, the connection between cause and effect is clear. With emotional trauma, it's much, much less clear. That, that makes it yeah. tough. Um, how, how has this impacted your social life? Oh, I think, um, uh, briefly put, I think I went from being quite an extrovert, uh, to being quite an introvert. Um, people who know me well, uh, or fairly well find it hard to believe that I'm an introvert. Um, but I think I just, uh, once I had my memories, um, I became much more skittish about uh, meeting people and developing friendships, uh, much more skeptical of other people. Um, I feel like I have a, a great many friends. I'm, I feel like I've had a very, very good social life. But clearly, uh, especially early on when I remembered and was dealing with my abuse you know, constantly, uh, I very much withdrew from people, friends and family. Um, and only in more recent years have I become, begun to come out of that, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, how has this affected you, your long-term mental health? Oh, I, I wish I knew. Um, and that may sound odd to say, given how much I've been in therapy. Um, I, I think it's it's impacted uh, me an awful lot. Um, I'm pretty confident I would have been a more, uh, confident and relaxed and even keeled kind of person had I not been sexually molested time and time again as a kid. Um, 
I look at other people, for example, I mean, my siblings, in fact, uh, who, who, the ones who haven't been. And I, I of course, envy them. And I, uh, I, I just think that their path uh, in adulthood has, seems uh, less, um, you know, up and down, less uh, emotionally fraught. Now, of course, the grass is always greener, right? So and we, we don't know what, uh, even people who are close to us, we don't know what they're experiencing in their private lives. But um, I think I've clawed my way over the years to a position of relatively good mental health. But of course, the fact is, I shouldn't have had to claw any of it, right? Um, to other victims out there, what advice would you want to give them? Oh, that's a great question, Rachel. That is a great question. Um, I, I would, of course, say to them all the things we say to a first-time caller at SNAP. Uh, I believe you. It's not your fault. It does get better. Um, but I, I would say to people, you know, this is not a burden you can carry by yourself. It's just not. And you'll begin to get better. Here's my advice. You'll begin to get better the minute you start sharing your pain with others. Not indiscriminately, of course, um, but with trusted loved ones. I think almost every survivor I've ever spoken to, and I've spoken to hundreds and hundreds, almost every survivor I've spoken to in the long run knows that disclosing their pain uh, is good. It's good for themselves. It's good for their relationships. It's good for their families. So, and I guess I would also say, I would say to survivors that, Childhood sex abuse is a lot more like cancer than it is like the common cold. If you get a cold and you don't do a thing, you'll eventually get better, right? It'll go away. If you were sexually abused as a kid and you don't do anything about it, it's not going to get better. It's like cancer. It will keep growing and growing and growing, uh, even imperceptibly, but it, uh, imperceptibly, but it will affect your life in ways that you're just not even sure of. So you've got to face it head on. You've got to tell somebody you, you love and trust. Um, and you've got to at least try therapy. Um, but I would assure you know, survivors that it really can and does get better. The short term is rocky, but the long term, you know, I don't know of a single survivor who, who has ever said to me, Looking back on it, I wish I had just kept my mouth shut. Almost never have I heard that from survivors. Um, what was the grooming process like? Oh, this guy was, this guy was very smart. Um, it was slow. It was gradual. Um, uh, he ingratiated himself with our whole family. Uh, my mom and dad just absolutely loved him. And it started with small things like, well, will you come up to the rectory with me and help, help me with this mailing, um, you know, stuffing envelopes and licking stamps. And, 
And then it got to where, well, I have access to this cabin down on the Lake of the Ozarks this weekend. You know, what if I take David down there for just a couple of days? And, and then it got to the point where I was going on trips with him for a week long at a time. Um, so he, you know, he, I think very, very carefully won the trust of my family and won my trust and, uh, and blurred the boundaries all the time, uh, kept uh, praising me and, and saying that I was much more wise than my years and kind of treated me like an adult. And that felt really, really good. Um, it felt great to get that kind of attention and to be treated, you know, with respect. Um, but obviously little did I know as a kid that all of that was a, was just a setup. Um, a very effective yeah. one. Yeah. How has this impacted your faith? Well, I consider myself, um, sort of a reluctant agnostic. Um, I, uh, I don't particularly, I don't particularly believe in God. And sometimes I wish I did, but, uh, I stopped going to church in college, pretty much the first opportunity I had. Um, and it, uh, it, I think has been, you know, every now and then if I'm walking down the hallway in a hospital and I see a whole bunch of visitors in one room, um, you know, bringing flowers and cookies or whatever, or on a Sunday morning, if I drive somewhere and I pass a church and it's a warm day and standing outside the church are these throngs of people and you can tell they're happy and they're among people who know them well. Every now and then I feel a pang of regret and, and envy. Uh, but for the most part, quite frankly, the kind of community that churches uh, try to be or claim to be is really, it. that's the same kind of community that... Um, that we built through SNAP. And I really do feel like uh, I have found um, a real family, if you will, uh, outside of my own um, you know, flesh and blood family. Uh, and I, so I've found the kind of fellowship and camaraderie and uh, like-mindedness uh, among survivors that a lot of people find in a church or a synagogue. Okay. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Oh, that's a dangerous question, Rachel. <laughs> Grab a cup of coffee, prop your feet up. <laughs> uh, well, I would, I would just, I would just, um, I would just kind of echo what I said earlier about uh, it. Really does get better. Oh, I, I know what I would say. I guess I would say that um, for me, one of the toughest, toughest parts about recovery, um, was feeling helpless, feeling utterly helpless. Um, I couldn't turn the clock back. I couldn't suddenly give myself a second, uh, worry free, non-abusive childhood. And I couldn't protect my younger siblings who had already been molested by this priest. So what I found is that, uh, the less I act ashamed, the less I feel ashamed. And the more steps I take to protect other kids and help other survivors, the better it makes me feel about myself. Um, as you can imagine, after you know 30 years in SNAP, fairly often I've heard a survivor say to me, you know, gosh, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for all the outreach, blah, blah, blah. And, and I've always had to just say, look, I have benefited as much as or more than anybody from the work of SNAP. Um, 
it's not something I, I do for other people. It's something I do because it helps me. And I think uh, that that's why I'm sort of optimistic about the long term, because the more survivors have options to take action against their predator or against his employer or action to protect other kids, uh, I think the better the better we'll feel. Um, I, I know that that's been the case with me. The more that I uh, speak publicly, uh, find other survivors, uh, work together with them to reform archaic predator-friendly statutes of limitations, work with them to form support groups, all of that stuff has been extraordinarily healing to me. always follow us on your favorite podcast platform or social media platform and if you have any questions or you want to reach out always go to rachelonrecovery.com thanks for listening